It's another bisexual brunch with Nikki Hodgson, Lewis Oakley and Ashley Byrne. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. We as journalists and activists have always found it very difficult to find people who will openly talk about being bisexual. Just don't think there are enough bi perspectives on bi issues. I feel like we've got to talk about it because we're really comfortable doing that. It can be really intimidating. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. I've always found myself at the mercy of gay and straight advice. You can have a bit of competition to see who's the better bisexual bruncher. This is Bisexual Brunch. Yeah, welcome to another uh, Bisexual Brunch. And uh, this week, of course, we'll be having the second part of our special interview with the leading American bisexual campaigner, Robin Oaks, who this time is going to be telling us um, all about how the bisexual groups started in America in the late 1970s, early 80s, um, and blossomed through the 80s, through all that awful period um, around HIV and AIDS when bisexual people got blamed for um, all of that to an extent, and you know, lots of them suffered suffered abuse. We'll be hearing from about that from from Robin, but also we'll be hearing from Robin about where she thinks America is now um, when it comes to bisexual rights and what she hopes or thinks might come of the uh, uh, Biden administration. So, of course, uh, Nikki, um, you're uh, you've been having an active week work wise, but you're also busy handling puppies or something. What's going on? Come on, tell us. Well, as everyone who knows me knows, I'm obsessed with dogs and desperate for my own. But of course, I live in a property where the landlord says no. So during COVID, I've been on this app called Borrow My Doggy, where you basically volunteer to look after people's dogs. It hadn't been going very well. And then today I've been matched with a three-month-old uh, three puppy um, called Bingley. He's a Sprocker Spaniel. And he matches my gilet that I wear all the time when it's cold. And because of that, he thought that I was also either another dog and he wanted to like eat me. Then he was trying to hump me. Then he was trying to like wrestle with me. So I've been doing that much quite times. <laughs> it took so much out of me just playing with him all afternoon. <laughs> I've really gone blown. It's like a very nice thing to do. We're on a dog Tinder app. Is yeah, that what it's, it's come dog, to? It's dog Tinder, exactly. But the thing that was cool is that the girl that owns him, she's a journalist. We were talking all about journalism. Like we got on so she could... I think that was part of the reason that she was like, oh, you must come around and look after him because she trusts that I'm just going to, you know, be the same kind of person she is. It's funny how it works. Like, you need to have a bond with the owner, not just the animal. Right. OK, that's interesting. And you can yeah. you, you can do, you, like like me, I'm in the uh, apartment block where we're not allowed to have animals, but you're allowed to do that br- briefly, are you? Is that kind of thing you're allowed no, to do? No, no. I go to their house. They literally live two streets away. Oh, so I right. go to their house to look after him. I might sneak him in at some point, but my landlord's not listening, but I might sneak him in. Yeah, let's hope your landlord doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> I really don't think he knows who the hell I am, my, my landlord. He's a big corporate landlord. But there's uh, a park where I can walk in when he gets a bit bigger, and it's just really sweet to, like, I don't know, be neighbourly for a change as well. So there's a, so there's a, there's a doggy Tinder, a pet Tinder, but there's, but there's, there's nothing equivalent for bisexuals yet. <laughs> Or <laughs> so you borrow a bisexual and pet them for an hour. Yeah, why not? I'd enjoy that. <laughs> People can borrow me. Uh, and so, Lewis, you've been also not just starring on Bisexual Brunch, you've also been on 
BBC Radio 4, which is the UK's uh, main speech network, uh, on a new comedy panel show called The Likely Dads. And uh, I think you've made history because you've probably become the first sort of bisexual to appear on one of these kind of uh, kind of shows. We're going to play a clip in a moment, actually. You can still hear it on BBC Sounds online. Anyone in the world can listen in to, to Lewis on the comedy panel show. But, um, um, yeah, great, great thing to do um, because... You are a dad, you happen to be bisexual, and um, being a dad can be quite funny, can't it? Being a dad can be funny, and actually, I, I, not to be prejudiced myself, but you do sometimes, as, as a bisexual that's kind of used to the LGBT culture, when they were like, oh, you're going to be in a, in a room full of like straight men that are all dads, I was just like, oh, boring. Um, but I honestly had a really great time. Um, and, you know, it, it's nice as well to be included in those conversations. You know, I think we always think bisexuals under that LGBT umbrella. We don't ever think of bisexuals under the parenting umbrella or as, you know, the men umbrella. And so it was really nice to to sit down, have a discuss, realize that, you know, parenting, you just have to take it as, as a big comedy show because just don't take yourself seriously as a parent. Um, and, 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 yes, and obviously with my experience with parenting is like, you know, I've been a stepdad for four years. Um, but now obviously I have my own little baby who's two months old. So I, it's really a weird one because, you know, you've got an actual sort of almost teenager one and then you've got this one that can barely talk. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. And you're the first one on the show, I think, in the entire series who's come on, who is actually a, a stepdad as well as a um, a dad through you know nat- natural means, as it were. Let's have a clip um, from the show. The show, this particular episode, um, is all about stories, stories you tell your children. Um, and of course, one of the stories, one of the things you have to tell them at some point, is around the. Birds and the bees, the facts of life, etc. Um, and so let's hear to hear Lewis what Lewis had to say about that. Here we go. Well, it's weird because you come into a kid's life when they're seven; they already know a lot of stuff. So he knew what sex was, but he didn't really understand that you could have sex for fun. He thought you just did it for a baby. So he was like, "So you're a virgin?" <laughs> because I didn't have yeah. children, so he, yeah. he didn't really get. I was like, "We don't really need to get into it, do we?" Um, Sorry, but now sex is fun. Yeah. <laughs> when it's finished, yeah, because you can play FIFA. Yeah. <laughs> but now he's 11. Obviously, like Laura was just was pregnant. I said something like, um, "I've given you a sister," and he was like, "Yeah, because you shagged my mom." So we're at that, wow. we're at that point now. Oh, where it's like, wow. okay. how old is he? Said that he's 11. That's yeah. not what I would use on Shags. stage for the harsh <laughs> drunkard heckler in their 40s. That's someone he's heard in the playground, isn't it? Yeah. It's TikTok. It's not even on the playground oh, anymore. Six, yeah. <laughs> I thought TikTok was funny musical video. Did it? Did did did? I shagged your mum. Ding. <laughs> so there you go. A little clip of uh, you talking about. Uh, uh, how you approach the, uh, the 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 facts of life with with your uh, um, your boy uh, Lewis, and of course later <laughs> on later on you're the one in the spotlight for a question from your uh, uh, from mm. your boy as well. We won't give that away because that's interesting. What he how he it, it's a bit like Mister and Mrs. If you've ever anybody who's listening remembers Mister and Mrs. in the UK, I think there's an American version as well at some point. But basically, it, we, what what happens on the show is that. Um, they ask uh, the children a set of questions about their dad and try and work out if um, their, their dad, you know, um, thinks the same way kind of thing. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we won't give that away. Don't give it away, Lewis. Everyone's got to listen on... Uh, I won't, but I will say I was blindsided by what it was. And, yeah. you know, it was, it, was, it was a proper childhood trauma that came back and I, I didn't realise that he knew about it. 
So well, yeah, definitely tune in because I, 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 I mean, you've got my reaction because I was genuinely a bit speechless. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> um, so yeah. On the show, of course, um, it's a, it's a, it's a comedy show, so it's it's all about at the end of the day. Um, you know, just having a laugh about being a dad, really, because there's lots of things that come up about you know being a dad that are that are funny. You know, and I don't think it's been explored much before, so it's a, a great series in that sense. But on a more serious side, um, you're appearing on this show as a bisexual dad, and mm-hmm. we've we've talked about this a little bit in the past, Lewis. But it is an issue, isn't it, in the sense of just that whole thing of you know, we I think to an extent we've got to a point where people. You know, kids generally know there are gay dads, as it were. Um, but the whole issue of, of being a bisexual dad is is relatively a relatively new thing. I can't imagine many kids are talking about it in the playground, saying, "Oh, I've got a bisexual dad." Obviously, in your uh, boy's uh, case, I know that's that's the case because it's come up, hasn't it? But what I'm what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is what you know. What are the issues going forward on that? Do you think because it, it isn't something that's necessarily easy to bring up um you know just what i'm saying is do, does the do we need to does there need to be more support for in inverted commas bisexual dads or even bisexual mums for that matter to try and help them through the whole process of explaining um their lives to their children yeah i mean i think it's always going to be different right based on your kid and their understanding of the world so i had a really good experience with with my stepson there are obviously things you always worry about and consider, like, you know, he's cool with it, but what if the people at school aren't, you know, and I've got a big mouth and I'm always in the media. What if they like see it and it, and it, it becomes like a thing. Um, and you know, that he hasn't actually told them they've just discovered it. And then you kind of worry, will my kid be bullied by association? Cause my, um, fiance has had, um, you know, negative comments and stuff for dating a bisexual guy. So it's like, you don't want that for your kids as well. So there's that element of it. There's also, you know, other parents can be quite judgy. And so, you know, they're, they're drawing their assumptions of like, oh, well, you know, Jamie's got a bisexual stepdad and who knows what goes on over there. You know, I, I don't know. Blah, blah, you know, do they invite people over and stuff like that? Assuming that, you know, you can't ever be faithful as a bisexual. So that, you know, there's those elements of like, oh, my God, is he going to be passed over for sleepovers and stuff? Um but, so yeah, there's that kind of thing, um, and it, yeah, I, I guess there's also good things that are brought to it. Like I never assumed Jamie was straight. I always kind of used to say, "Is there any girls or boys you like?" I think it's pretty clear he's straight. I think his, his hormones have kicked in somewhat. But um, you know, I, I think that, that there's positive things you bring to the kid's life as a bisexual person. You bring, you know, different cultures with you, really, because I think bisexuality we're in such such a unique perspective, and it's such a unique way of life um but i think it's it's good for kids do you think nikki thinking because i know you want children at some point as well um in this instance again it's the issue isn't it the issue is actually we do want kids to know about it we do want kids to talk about it probably more so amongst people who are bisexual because of the fact that it is under the radar. You know, you can see homosexuality to an extent. It's, vi- you know, it's visual in a way. Um, you know, people, if, if there are two women together, you automatically think they're partners. If two men together, you automatically think they're partners to an extent. If there are a man and a woman together, you think they're heterosexual. And that is in the psyche now to an extent. But actually, if we're not careful, if we're not open with kids 
you know, and obviously there's a debate as to what age you talk to them about uh, about people being bisexual or whatever, or any sexuality. But if we're not open with kids, that's going to cause even more problems down the line, not just in terms of the relationships with their parents, but also their own relationships as well, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I mean, it always has done. We've got evidence from generations past that if you're not open about sexuality, people go on feeling guilt, shame, that they, you know, they harbour anxiety about what they are or who they are. I think what's interesting about bisexuality is like what Lewis is saying there. I think there's this feeling amongst so-called, some so-called middle class or civilised people that bisexuality, like we always talk about, is seen as the, the, the most promiscuous orientation to be. And I wonder if because of that, where parents or other adults might be more willing to talk about LGBT stuff in general, they kind of leave the bi out because they just think that one's too hard to explain. And I know that's definitely been the case with trans people, hasn't it? Like that's often been a thing that's been too hard to explain to people haven't bothered, which I think has started to shift a bit in the past couple of years, which makes me really happy. But I wonder with bisexuals, if again, there's a little, because there's a little prejudice on the part of the parent, like they, they don't really know what they think or they don't really know what they'd say in front of another person. So they won't do it in front of children. Yeah. And I wonder, Lewis, thinking back to the Likely Dads and having listened to it, obviously you were, you know, um, mentioned as a presenter of uh, bisexual brunch, uh, that side of things wasn't wasn't hidden. And you you know, uh, I think there was a, a little bit of a mention about you know what your boy you know stepson thought about you taking your top off and all that kind of stuff. But uh, won't give too much away again. But there was very little mention about or, or that the, the panelists didn't directly talk to you about what it was like to be a bisexual dad. And I guess that actually. There's a bit of nervousness about that because it, it, it's it's easy uh, to understand the gay side of things. But again, I think people do find it quite difficult to to get in their head the whole thing of, of bisexuality. I don't know what you thought. But that's that was my impression. Was a, yeah, it was a weird experience because you book a loudmouth bisexual to be on your show, and then you don't ask them about being the loudmouth bisexual. So I was kind of like, oh, they're, they're going to come on to the whole asking him about being bisexual so I was like don't get into it yourself um because you know you you want to save the points for for when you actually have the discussion about it so I peppered it into other things that that it just naturally came up in um and then it was like and that's a wrap and I was like what <laughs> we didn't even talk about it properly I was, I was so ready I had all my points but that but, um, but that yeah but that's what I mean I think I think the panel you'd got are, are of the of the mind that actually and, and rightly so, you know, you're a dad. Your sexuality doesn't actually matter to being a dad. But I suppose what my point is in this instance, because we're not in a world yet where, you know, bisexuality is understood and it's largely misunderstood, we actually do want people to ask about it and to talk about it, don't we? We want we want those questions. Uh, however however daft those questions like are. Does. Someone daft. like me does, you know. I, other, you know, your regular civilian dads i would say that bisexual dads that they, they probably don't want to be questioned about it but someone like me who like throws themselves to the fire like i'm up for being questioned about it i guess <laughs> so they missed their opportunity <laughs> they did but you've got your name in the radio times and all over the place and do you know yeah. what's really funny you you messaged me to say you're in the radio times so i was like oh my god so i went and brought the radio times for the first time probably ever in my life and i'd brought the wrong one it was for the the other the other week so i just had a, a useless radio times hanging around <laughs> never mind never mind <laughs> i've got christmas radio times here i treated myself yesterday Bloody yeah <laughs> Yeah. 
Everyone buys the ratings Christmas one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not Christmas about the Radio Times. Well, at one time, of course, at one time... paying us for this placement? At one, yeah, it'd be good if they were. At one time, of course, you used to have to have the TV Times and the Radio Times because a TV... I think we did that, yeah. Yeah, TV Times was ITV and, B, and obviously BBC and the Radio Times. Although the Radio Times was like paper. Do you remember? It was like newspaper. Really, really quite hard, funny thing to read, really, at the time, way, way back. It's a pleasure. I'm so old. Like, I actually really look forward to reading it. Yeah, no, it is. It is. That's a middle age. So we're, we're middle aged, Nikki. We've we've arrived. Nobody can see, obviously, but Lewis's face right now is a picture of absolute disgust. Like, <laughs> with. No, it's nice. It's it's a bit retro and reminiscent of a simpler time when there were only four channels. <laughs> so talking about being open in relationships leads us on to something that's been happening in Spain uh, which is a, on a more serious note about the whole thing of, of coming out as bisexual or not coming out as bisexual not being open about your sexuality has landed someone in trouble there I think it's a civil um, thing not a criminal thing um, who wants to take up that story oh I will. I mean, this is honestly outrageous. So, I mean, the headline is bisexual man ordered to pay ex-wife thousands after she accused him of hiding his homosexuality. Only he's not gay. So that's that's the um, headline in Pink News. So what's basically happened is couple got married, um, couple got divorced. Um, this guy then, you know, understood his sexuality a bit better um, and came out as bi. She then waited and sued him and won. Um, so the, I mean, this case brings up, there's a couple of issues here that really like we need to kind of like delve into. So the, the thing is this couple, they got together when they were 16. And as I've said before on the show, like I didn't realize I was bisexual until I was 19. So there's this whole issue here of, um, cause I think what she's saying is, uh, you know, he tricked me. She's basically said, um, if I'd have known the truth about his sexuality, I never would have married him. And it's this idea that he must have known from the beginning when they got together at 16. And I think that's something we have to take into account when we talk about bisexual issues is a lot of bisexuals realize later in life. So this is, you know, this is just a normal, a normal experience for bisexual people. So he said he didn't know he was bisexual until sort of after the marriage. Um, but the thing is here is like she won. So he's been fined a thousand euros for every year they were married which granted was only three but i think three thousand euros is quite a hefty sum and it just sets a dangerous precedent right because if you're a bisexual person in a relationship now not only have you got the normal things of oh my god what if my wife doesn't accept it what if we end up getting divorced now you could also get sued i mean it bears saying this has happened in spain this is not um here in the uk um, so I, I would hope nothing like this would happen in the UK. Um, but I, I think it's just a dangerous precedent. It's, it's more incentive. If you're bisexual and in a, in a marriage, it's basically saying, don't come out, whatever you do, keep, take it to your grave. It's, it's, I mean, there's, there's hardly any words to describe. I'm genuinely speechless. Yeah, I expected a bit more of Spain, to be honest. I don't think, I mean, actually, you know, we have issues occasionally here with different things, but I don't think this could happen here. Could it, Nikki? Really? I really hope not. I think what also was dangerous about it is that he said in the report, which so I presume it was brought up in court, that he had come to the conclusion that he was bisexual with the help of a therapist. Now, generally speaking, in the UK, if you had a therapist that had your back in any kind of, you know, civil court case, 
then that would be that would be seen as an authoritative figure, you know, who could give evidence on your behalf, etc. I just think it's really, really strange that they basically ignored the evidence that the um, therapist has given, because that's suggesting that they don't really believe that people can change their sexual orientation. And that I find worrying. It just shows that their law doesn't really understand or accept the notion of bisexuality as like a, a, a concept. You know, I mean, she sued him for being homosexual. And he was like, but I'm not. I'm bisexual. And that just, they didn't care in the legal s- structure there. It's shocking. And to be honest, I never, kind of like you, Ash, I kind of thought Spain was along the right lines. I don't know much about their legal system, but, you know, I've been there. I've been to the gay beaches there. You know, it was, it seems, everyone seemed happy. Um, but yeah, I, it's shocking, honestly. Yeah, it is. It does sound um, appalling. Uh, well, what we'll do, uh, we'll seek some clarity on it, just like we did with the uh, Norwegian situation. And we, we got some clarity on that because the hype in the media wasn't quite exactly what it was in Norway, was it? So, you know, you have to take some of these stories, sadly, with a sort of uh, a bit of a health warning, don't you, Nikki? You definitely do. Um, people get things wrong sometimes in reports. So let's investigate some further, I reckon. Journalist, <laughs> and I'm wrong some of the time. That's what I'm basing it on. So there we go. Indeed. Well, let's move on. And after the break, uh, we'll be getting the second half of our special interview with America's leading bisexual campaigner, Robin Oakes. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to the Bisexual Brunch Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, stay away from me, we're not going to get on. (laughs) A brand new show from the team behind Bisexual Brunch. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a a child, it's not spoken about much, women sort of own this area. (laughs) I was hoping it was going to be like the old films I watched where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You're going to see your father now for ten minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. It's been on our tellies for six decades and we're big fans here at Distinct Nostalgia. And we're so passionate about our love for Corrie that we've put together some real treats for our listeners as we delve into the show's history this December. And we're supposed to be both at university. And uh, he was trying to sort of break out of this little backstreet world to better himself, really. It wasn't usual for people from some street like Coronation Street to go to university. He, he changed the mode. And of course, people were in those times. They were beginning to go to university. We're right back to the very first episode with Ken Barlow's very first girlfriend and Alan Rothwell, who played Ken's brother, David Barlow. Coronation Street went out live to start with. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, that was terrifying. Yes, yeah. You had to do a half an hour of television. Yes, and get it right. And get it right, yeah. 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 Staying in the 60s, and Kenneth Cope tells us how wooing Violet Carson, Ina Sharples, landed him a role in the show as Minnie Caldwell's lodger, Sonny Jim. She got me under the viaduct and started shouting at me, pointing a finger, pointing a finger and saying, get out, go away from here. People like you, 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 you don't deserve to be here. Get out and never come back, never come out. Go away, go away, go away. And our heads got closer and closer and closer. 
closer to the bay. There's a slight pause, and I said, give us a kiss. And it just brought the house down, everybody. The whole crew just laughed their heads off. From our own archives, we bring you never-before-broadcast anecdotes from Jean Alexander and Betty Driver. It was Ina Sharples, Margot Bryant uh, that played Minnie Caldwell, me, Julie Goodyear, Jean Alexander that played Hilda Ogden, and we all used to be together and do scenes just of conversation, which I miss now. We should do more of that. Meanwhile, Amanda Barry and Chris Bisson remember their time on Coronation Street. I went in initially into the shop, Jim's Cafe, as it was then. I was invited in there to sack Pat Phoenix. Oh. <sighs> you know, I was, I was actually leading Lady in the West End, doing me better, but actually going there to do... Now, you talk about nerves. She was the leading lady of Coronation Street, oh, wasn't she? But it wasn't that. It was that it was unreal. It was surreal. Everybody says it, and it's true. You're completely surreal to go into there and go... You couldn't concentrate. You were going, concentrate a man that is not Elsie... It, it, is Elsie Turner? It's Elsie Turner. I'm talking to Elsie Turner. I don't know what I'm going to say next. I'm just step. This is what you do. It was like being, waking, being very in the middle of a dream, and you're going concentrate, Amanda. You are still supposedly an actress. Get on with it. Yeah. We'll also have interviews with Julie Hesmondalch and Bruce Jones, and many more. Make sure you join us for all the fun, and don't forget to trawl our archives for loads of other Corrie interviews. Thelma Barlow, Steve Arnold, Nick Cochran, Chris Quinton, Chloe Newsom, Philip Lowry, Sherry Hewson, Madge Hindle, Martin Hancock, Tupeli Dorgu, stars from every decade of the world's longest-running drama serial. Celebrating Corrie at 60, this December, from Distinct Nostalgia. And of course, if you're interested in Distinct Nostalgia, uh, you just need to look up Distinct Nostalgia wherever uh, you get your podcasts. So then, on Bisexual Brunch now, we return to our interview, the second part of our interview, with Robin Oakes, the leading American bisexual rights campaigner. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. So we're moving now from your personal story into your activism um, to some extent. You said you had a group at the time, so so did you get into activism fairly quickly in, in the 1980s then? Is that when it actually started, right at the beginning of the 80s? I did. So so I, you know, I told you about the story of my, co- my co-worker coming out to me um, a few months after that. I moved to Boston. And the very first week I was in Boston, I opened up the local feminist newspaper and they had calendar listings of events. And I opened it up and there in the calendar was a meeting at the Women's Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it was um, this thing called Women's Wrap. And they had um, different, I guess they had rotating topics every week, they had different topics. And the theme of the of that very week was bisexuality. And I had never, I was, I was beside myself with excitement because I had never seen that, you know, that was amazing. Just like that, that existed, that that meeting was going to happen. So of course I showed up at the meeting and I walked into the room and there were 20 women in the room in the living room of the women's center. And I, it was the most exciting 19. And by the way, 19 of those women identified as bisexual, just like me. And one was a lesbian named Madge who had come to cruise and just to see who was there. 
and I remember that, but like there were 19 bisexual women in that room. And I think until that moment, and this is in 1982, until that moment, I don't think I was 100% certain that there were that many bisexual people in the world. Again, before Google, before the internet. And it was the most amazing evening. And just for me, just the power of sitting in a room where all of us, except Madge, identified as bi and to be in this space with this like amazing and these like really cool people and they were wonderful and they were nice people and they were interesting and and they were bisexual like oh my god and and look how many there were and this was amazing so anyway at the end of the meeting um, a woman stood up her name is Marsha Deal and she said um this has been wonderful is anyone else in this room interested in potentially forming an ongoing support group and out of that came a group called the Bivocals, which was eight of us. And we met for almost 10 years. We met monthly. And it was an amazing space. We were eight women who had very little in common with each other. Um, we were, but four of us were in our mid-20s, four in our mid-30s at the time. I was one of the younger, younger ones. And the one thing we shared was our bisexual identity, but it was a space where we would argue about everything else, but you could go into that space and nobody questioned your bisexuality. Nobody doubted you for a minute. Like, of course you were bisexual because you said you were. And that was amazing. And it was just so nourishing and wonderful. And about a year after we started, um, we actually helped a couple of other support groups start from future women's raps, we would just show up and at the end say, hey, by the way, we did this. You may want to consider doing this too. So within a year, there were three support groups and we decided to have a group, a meeting and we held it at the Women's Center and we expected probably 30 women to show up because that's how many women had kind of gotten involved over that year. And we had so many women in the room that I think it was closer to 80 women in the space. There were people standing outside in the flower beds, looking in the windows. We were kind of almost stacked inside the room. There were people in the hallway who couldn't fit inside the room. And it was amazing. And out of that, we formed the Boston Bisexual Women's Network. And that started in 1983. And that's the organization that um, is the host of Bi Women Quarterly, which I still, which I'm editing now. And yeah, so that's it. So that's ever since then, we've been doing like organizing groups and doing advocacy and activism. So that was what was happening in Boston. What was happening in other parts of the United States um, at the time? Do we know or was what you were doing, you know, unique, as it were? Well, this is what's so interesting. Um, we were operating on our own without knowledge of any other groups. Meanwhile, in other places people were organizing. San Francisco had actually started, San Francisco started organizing, for example, in the seventies with bisexual um, organizations, but they were more focused on kind of sexual freedom. Um, the wave of organizations that started in the 1980s was I think more based on feminism and more of a, a different, different focus. Although obviously there were people in each of these different waves who had a variety of interests and opinions and positions. So I think that it's not, it's not simple that w in that way, but I do think that the 1970s by organizing was more around um, sexual freedom. 
the 1980s by organizing was more focused on feminism and more political in a different in a different way. I mean, you got the women's groups together, but were there similar things happening uh, around men at the time as well, or, or was that a bit of a no-no? Not quite yet. So, so I think the first thing that happened was women women organized, and that happened in San Francisco. Not just the, the like the next round of organizing in San Francisco in the eighties, Chicago, New York, Boston. Um, it was happening St. Louis, like it was happening in these different places, um, Seattle, Washington. Um, so it was happening here and there and around the country. And it was also happening in other parts of the world. It was happening in the UK. You know, London, London was doing quite a lot. Um, it was happening in a lot of the Western European countries. So it's interesting that this was happening individually, but it was happening on a widespread level across the world. So I think in a, in a way, so when you, if you, to try to understand that, if you look back at history, I think that like history happens in waves sometimes like there is and every movement creates space for and builds on other movements. So I think, for example, um, the woman like the, the black civil rights movement made possible um, the 1970s, you know, women's liberation movement, or at least it informed it on um, the, the, in the 1980s, I think that what happened is that the, newly organized gay and lesbian movement had reached a sufficient level of strength that it could accommodate um, internal dissent or internal diversity. And, and if you look at the 1980s in the United States, at least what you see is a lot of, um, especially like women of color, black women organizing and saying, hello, not all lesbians are white. <laughs> you know, um, and and like dis women's women with disabilities organizing, there was there's a whole you can actually see this in the um, history of anthologies, like all these different groups of people got together and wrote told their own stories and made their own narrative and made their own organizations. Um, there's a whole bunch of anthologies that came out in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, there's you know with the power of each breath is an anthology of like women with disabilities. Um, the there's like a anthology of working class women. There's like bisexual stuff happening. There's like all these different groups of people. And then in the 1990s, you also see transgender organizing and activism and visibility. And so I feel in a way like the, the movement, the, the movement upon which all of us were kind of hiding along the edges of or inside of, or some of us were organizing, but not under all of ourselves, but under a piece of ourselves. It's certainly been organic, hasn't it? It's evolved in different sort of different natural, natural ways, really. You know, I don't want to, obviously, we could talk for a long time about the, the evolving of the bisexual sort of um, activism and community and all the rest of it. We would be here all night, obviously, if we did that. <laughs> but let's, um, let's talk about where we are now in the year 2020. It feels as, a, as somebody who identifies as a bisexual man, that yes, things are move forward in a way you know i'm in a relationship with um a gay man i've been in a relationship with this with a gay man for quite a long time you know we we, we have no problems he has no problem with me being bisexual we have a, you know we have a good um you know I've, I've been very lucky i've been able to be open with him uh, my two co-presenters on bisexual brunch are equally they're in heterosexual facing relationships but their partners know they're bisexual i haven't got a problem with it but we are lucky 
there are so many, I think, uh, bisexual men and women in relationships where they still can't talk about being open about bisexuality. And even when you you think things have moved on, and I think things have moved on a little bit, or quite a lot, actually, when it comes to acceptance of lesbian and gay, um, there's still little reminders of actually, when you say bisexual, people are they're quizzical. They're, they're thinking, what's that about? Why? And whether that's because the word has sex in it or something, I don't know. But people cannot yet, I find, get their head around it still. And it, it's not helped by the fact that we're still invisible, largely in the media and things. There's not many represent, much representation out there. So in America, America's on a bit of a cusp at the moment, obviously, because you've had this, you know, year, several years of this binariness in America. You know, same here as well. Where it's all lefts and rights against each other and nothing much in the middle. And obviously being bisexual, we represent all sorts of different nuances. And I feel as though sometimes we're not in a very nuanced age, as it were. Where do you think um, bisexual rights are now in 2020 in America? Well, in terms of the legal the legal frame, I think that most laws in the U.S. are written around sexual orientation so that we're covered. Um, so legally, we're, we're, um, some states in the U.S. have protections, some don't. Um, I think that the difference is more cultural. So I do think, well, first of all, I think that you're right. We are in a very binary moment, um, we have, but we've always been in a binary moment in different ways. Um, and that's one of the challenges for people who identify as bi. If you're attracted to more than one gender, if you have the potential to be attracted to more than one gender, if you just want to even hold that out as a, you know, as a possibility or as an understanding of yourself, some people are made uncomfortable because some people want things to be simple and easy to tag, label, and put into a box. And in their minds, they don't have that many boxes available. So we're taking up too much space in their brains in a way like that. They just want it to be simple and binary. They want to know what to be able to predict from you. And that that's, that's, you know, that's, I think that's part of the gut, you know, visceral response that people have. Um, it's interesting. I, th I do think that in, I've been doing this work now for, Oh my goodness. Um, almost 40 years. So I guess 38 years. And, for the first 30-something of those years, perhaps 35, I didn't feel that we were making much of a difference. I really felt frustrated. I felt that we were just stuck. Um, I mean, there was some progress. Names got changed. You know, people added on the word bisexual and then later transgender. But I felt that oftentimes that wasn't real. That was just kind of they were adding the names because they didn't want to get yelled at by us. <laughs> So it was like LG, fake B, fake T. Um, but I think, I do think that in the past few years, something has shifted. Um, I think that one of the things that has made a big difference is the rise of people identifying as non-binary in terms of their gender. I think that the very existence of people who identify as non-binary um, points out the complexity of our categories and the messiness of our categories and I mean messy in all the good ways not the bad ways um, I think that I think that if you can hold one kind of non-binary if you can understand people being non-binary in one way it's easier to understand non-binary in other ways but people do get confused about them don't they I've uh -huh. been in quite high profile meetings with different organizations 
and they think binary and non-binary and bisexuality are all the same kind of thing. And of course, it's it's different, isn't it? Oh, there are people who think that sexual orientation and gender are this gender identity are the same things. Yeah, but that's that's that's. I think that there's a fundamental um, lack of good education um, in most places in the world, right? There's most people in this world are not given good information through any kind of institutionalized, you know, delivery system. Um, education has, has failed us. Um, but I think that, so what I'm seeing that's changed is first of all, the number of people identifying as bi has gone way, way, way up. There's um, a study done of high school students in the US um, by the Center for Disease Control. It's a study of about, they asked them about a hundred questions. It's a representative sample study. So they pick um, secondary schools throughout the United States that are representative of the whole United States. And they administer a survey to the children in those schools. And the number of people identifying as bi high school students is now 8.8%. Um, of four years ago, it was 6%. You know, so that's changing dramatically. And if you how, look at- how does, that, how does that compare with le people who are identifying as lesbian and gay? Is it sort of- Lesbian and gay is, was 2%, 2 um, six year, four years ago, and now it's 2.4%. Right, okay. okay. 2.6, no, it's 2.6% now. My suspicion is that that 8% you've just been saying is just the tip of the iceberg, really. I think so too. And, and the, there's also data from Gallup, which they do these telephone surveys. Um, they have also shown a tremendous increase in the number of people who, who will say yes to the question, do you personally identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender? Um, and when you break that out by age cohort, the younger you are, the more likely you are to say yes to that question. So I think the changes that we're seeing, number one, is that more people are identifying as some sort of LGBTQIA, right? Some sort of not straight. Fewer people are identifying as exclusively heterosexual. And, and bisexual, like the number of people identifying as bisexual, according to one other survey, the general social survey, has tripled in the last 10 years. So I think that these changes are happening and they're having an impact. If you look at US um, public figures, the number of people coming out as bi has increased dramatically. And some of those folks are also playing bisexual characters on television shows. And one of the things that I think is very exciting is at least I can think of two characters in particular played by bisexual actresses who help develop their own characters on the television show. So not only are we seeing actual representation, but it's more realistic. It's, it's good representation. It's positive representation. It's using sophisticated, you know, frame of understanding. So I think that, I really think that we're making some, we've, we've, something's changing. We're, we're yeah. so far from where we need to get, yeah. but we have come so far. And I really, in my experience, it's almost like something, a dam broke. Mm -hmm. Something now is different than it was just a few years ago. In, in the UK, um, we've had a few bisexual characters in, in dramas and soaps and things, but they tend to be um, very brief. You know, they're not in the programmes for very long. Uh, they're written out uh, either 
either they're horrible, evil people, <laughs> or they're uh, or strange, really weird, or whatever, or they're made straight or gay very, very quickly. Because you feel it seems that a lot of writers find it difficult. I don't know why. I mean, it's stupid, really, because bisexual identity is really interesting and can go in lots of different directions. It's quite fascinating. But they seem to want to try and, you know, they, they seem to think that the audiences can't cope. So um, I know there's several characters in several programs in, in America, but a lot of that hasn't, hasn't arrived here yet, to be fair. So we've not seen some of that. And it would be nice to see some of those, um, you know, those characters. But equally, there's still an issue here whereby, yes, bisexual gets mentioned here and there in little things, you know, and governments will come out with things on LGBT, whatever. But really, the average person in the street thinks of L and G rather than the B. Do you know what I mean? It tends to get ironed out a lot of the time. And I suppose... It's, and it, the, the figures are, exa- are similar over here, not, not as much um, because of probably lack of exposure. Because I think America, I think you tend to have much more um, identity politics than we do over here. And, but in terms of the figures that um, you got, um, they came out with some figures recently. And it, again, the number of people identifying as bisexual was definitely going up, Where, particularly amongst young people. Where I think there's an issue, and probably this is the same here and over in America as well, is in people, older people, who are in relationships and have been in relationships for years and years and years. And they might not work, work in these sort of youth-orientated circles or get all this, this kind of thing going on, you know, that's helping them to be more open. And that worries me, that they've spent, you know, they might get into the 60s or 70s or whatever and have spent an entire lifetime hidden. They're the people we need to be reaching out to, aren't they, really? Yeah, I think there's a challenge for people, people who are in um, long-term partnerships who, you know, who are monogamous, who consider like that this is the relationship they're in. I think there's a particular question that they ask, which is like, is this something even important? Is it important enough? Is it, is it, is it significant enough to make waves and talk about this? Um, and I mean, I've been, my wife and I have been together. We're in, we're in season 23 of our rom-com. Um, you know, we've been together for a long time. And I can easily see someone else in a similar relationship structure configuration who would comfortably identify as lesbian because like, well, why bother? For me, I'm an educator. Um, I think that there's a positive value of coming out. I think that by coming out, you can be a teacher, you can be a beacon, you can help other people um, find their own way. You can, you do, I think, I think coming out is powerful. Just as the woman who came out to me at work made it possible for me to come out. I hope that by coming out, it'll help other people, you know, feel possible, help other people come out. But I think that, again, I know so many people and I know people, I had a conversation with someone at a party last year and um, it was someone I had known for decades and we were talking and, and about my work and she says to me, oh yeah, actually I'm bisexual. And like, I had known her for decades as a lesbian. And I said, oh, I said, are you? I said, really? And she said just what I said. She said, you know, she's been with her partner for a few decades and it just didn't seem like worth the effort to bring it up all the time in her case. And she said, I'm not ashamed of being bi. She said, I'm definitely bi. And if, if, if my partner passed away and I ended up, you know, single, I, I can't tell you, I could get involved. I, I don't know who I get involved with. And I would certainly be open to 
anybody of any gender, she said, but, but it just doesn't really seem like it comes up a lot. People just assume things and I just don't correct them. Well, that's where the problem is, isn't it? We, 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 the whole thing about, you know, our, our, um, our invisibility is still an issue for so many people, isn't it? Because they, they don't know where to, to go, really. They don't know that, you know, and, and obviously the lesbian and gay movement is, is there now, very much there. It's arrived in a way people recognise it and all the rest of it. As you've alluded to earlier on, that, that you know, there is still prejudice within that movement, you know, towards bisexual people. That's even changing a little bit in the States. So I just want to give, give one, one little um, marker of, of progress, which is that two of the largest um, LGBTQ plus or LGBTQIA organizations in the U.S. Um, are now run by out bisexual people. And that's huge. So 20 years ago, I would not have, that would have been unimaginable. The fact that like the, or, there's an organization called Out and Equal, which is focused on workplace issues. Um, they, their, their executive director has been, is now by their, their new, their executive director of the past couple of years. And she's amazing and she's out and she's just, you know, wonderful. And then the task force, the LGBTQ task force, which is the second largest, I'd say, LGBTQ advocacy organization um, in the country is the incoming executive director is both black and a bisexual woman. And I am so excited about that because she's like, from what I know, she's really cool. She's coming in in January, I think. And, but that's, that's huge. Like that is never in all the years of advocacy in the U S like that would not have happened 20 years ago. And if anyone was bisexual, they would have had to have stayed in the closet to have maintained their, you know, status or credibility. Now, now we're, we're at the driver's, we're in the driver's seat in some of the organizations. So I do see a profound change. And I think that because young people are so much cooler and smarter than we are, um, they, they will, they will be driving this change. Uh, You've got a new president, but the speech that Biden made, he omitted the word bisexual. He mentioned lesbian, gay, transgender in there. And I've heard lots of people talking about this. People, Democrats defending him saying, oh, he didn't mean to, he didn't mean that. And he's very pro bisexual and the rest of it. But there are other people who've said that actually in America, the, 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 the using lesbian, gay and transgender has become, starts to become an, a norm in terminology rather than using the word bisexual. What, what's all that about? Well, this is an ongoing um, discussion. First of all, I don't think that Joe Biden intentionally um, omitted bisexual. I think that he needs to be brought up to date in his use of language, but I think once he is, he will... Or get a new speechwriter. <laughs> yeah, or his speechwriters need to be brought up to date. I, think, I, don't th- I don't think he intentionally did that. I think it was just, you know. But I do think that there's been this, this ongoing challenge inside um, the movement over which language to use. Um, usually lesbian, gay, and transgender does not get used. It's usually gay and transgender when they do that. And what they mean by that is sex, sexual orientation and gender identity. Like for them, it's this kind of universal holding pot of sexual orientation as represented by gay and gender identity as re- represented by transgender. But I think that that's, an, I don't like that pot. I think it's a pot that, I think until we get to a point where everybody understands um, non-binary genders and non-binary sexualities we need to keep saying those words out loud i hope that someday 
will get there and then then I won't care what shorthand you use. So you think Biden is going to be positive towards bisexuality? I mean, the Obama administration had a, a big get together or something, some kind of organ, some kind of a thing at the White House, didn't they? We had um, three large meetings um, and we had one smaller meeting on asylum. Um, so yes, we had four separate meetings that I know of at the White House during the Obama during the Obama administration. And I think, yeah, I think that'll come back. And finally, of course, President Obama has been doing his bit for bisexuality in his new book, hasn't he? What do you make, what do you make of his revelations? I just, I just saw the term ethereal bisexual. And I was, yeah, it, it, it set my imagination a flutter. You know, if anybody's open and yeah, he's just that kind of guy, isn't he? He's the kind of guy that would all, would be, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I just, it's one of these people, it's really weird with President Obama. Um, never met him, and all the rest of it, but you feel as though you know him. He's just one of those strange people. You just feel as though, if he was here in this room, that, you, you know, you could have long conversations. I, you've probably met him, have you? Obviously, have yeah. Yes, I met him at um, the first LGBT reception, Pride, um, Pride Month reception ever held at the White House um, in, in 2004. I don't even know what year it was, 2000 and whatever, eight, nine, 2009, June, 2009. Yeah. June, 2009, I met him at the white house at a reception and I actually got to talk to him and also to Michelle Obama and who is equally amazing. And they do, they make you feel heard. They make you feel like they see you. They, they have a very wonderful personal style. And then I also got to meet president Obama at the last LGBTQ reception at the White House in 2016 before we went into our period of icy cold darkness. And um, at that one, I was actually selected to meet him one-on-one. There was a small group of people at the larger reception who were invited to um, have a quick one-on-one meeting. And it was amazing. And he, yeah, he does that. He makes you feel seen. And I, I, I have a tremendous respect for him. I think he, um, just a smart, thoughtful person who cares about other people. I, I like that. It's a good, good quality in a president. Absolutely. And the other thing about him, of course, I, I saw him doing a, he was doing a chat at um, some students union or some, some university uh, earlier on this year. And he was, um, you know, he was calling out this whole thing of the binary conversations and the wokeness of everything and everybody trying to, you know, having a go at everybody and whatever, which I thought was really, really interesting. And, and really refreshing. And it was quite annoying, actually. They didn't get much exposure, probably because the media liked the fact that everyone's at each other's throats. And he was saying, actually, you know what? Sometimes progress comes gradually. And I thought that was quite a refreshing thing to hear from someone. And hopefully, you know, the nuances of life will return under Biden rather than all the, the binariness that we've had under Trump and similar here with similar things happening over here with regards to Europe. Except. I think it's hard. I think, Change, in fact, does some, some change can come quickly. Other change takes, takes a long time. But I think that the challenge is that when people feel that they have been set on fire, like they're in so much pain and distress that they are not surviving and they're not thriving, it's really hard to be told. Just be, be understanding. Yeah. So I think that we're, there is a tremendous amount of pain that people are in, and it's, it's a challenge yeah. to... Um, it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's really hard to be at your highest 
most evolved state of being if you are homeless, if you are hungry, if you are, you know, being assaulted. It, it's, it's just, it's, it's a very challenging. Um, we're, we're always told as bisexuals, aren't we? That we, by a lot of people, that we're not, we're not real, and by other bisexuals sometimes, that we don't suffer, that we've not suffered because we don't suffer in the same way that gay people suffer because we can, we can absorb ourselves into, you know, either the straight or the gay community and we don't, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and actually the silence that there is and the invisibility is equally as painful, isn't it? Let's face it. Everything, I mean, I, yeah, I wouldn't use the word equally, but I think sometimes more, sometimes less, definitely sometimes the same, sometimes different, sometimes similar. I think there's, there's first of all, I would say that uh, bisexual people don't get half gay bashed. Um, we don't get half fired from our jobs. We don't lose half of our children in a custody fight. Um, we don't get half um, kicked out of our families if we have a homophobic or biphobic phobic family. Um, I, and I also think that if you look at the data, there's research showing that in fact, um, bisexual people experience a tremendous amount of, of distress. There's a concept called minority stress, which is the st stress of social stigma. And, um, you can actually measure minority stress in a certain way by looking at the incidence of coping behaviors, because when people are under stress, they engage in coping mechanisms like drinking alcohol, like drug use, like cigarette smoking, like self self harm, suicidality. And when you look at the data and the research that's out there, bisexual people are apparently experiencing a lot of minority stress because we have very high rates of, of many of those things. And, I think that one of the things that gay and lesbian people have that most bisexual people don't have is a place where you can go and have your identity accepted and feel like you actually do belong to this group. I think that bisexual people spend a lot of time living or experiencing themselves as in the margins and feeling like they don't quite, they're not quite accepted. Like I'm only accepted if I don't talk about certain aspects of myself. I'm accepted. I'm ex people are assuming things about me. And if I don't clarify, then I'll be accepted, but that's not acceptance. No, absolutely. Um, so finally then, do you think that's the area where we've got the most work to do then that's sort of creating those spaces and places and, and whatever, and, and could, and could a new administration in America, I know, that the, the, the president doesn't have a massive influence on every single state and all the rest of it. I know the federal structure, but do you think the new administration could do something to further the bisexual cause? I don't think the change is really going to come from there. I think, I think that they can do certain things, like they can make sure that we are actually at the table, you know, during discussions, during policy discussions. Um, they can make sure that that be is real in LGBT um, and that we're truly represented. But I think that the change is, is happening elsewhere. Most of the change is happening elsewhere. And I think one of the things we need to do obviously is continue to create and hold bisexual spaces or by plus, I like to say by plus because there are many different words besides bisexual that people are using now like pansexual, etc. cetera. Um, I think we need to create and hold those spaces we need to, but we also need to make sure that the larger LGBTQ plus community is truly inclusive and truly welcoming. Um, so we need to do work in those, those spaces as well. 
Um, I think that we need to keep on working on media representation, cultural representation. We need to, we, I think we have a lot of work and it needs to be done in a lot of different ways. We need to continue to make sure that research um, looks specifically at the experience of bisexual people and not just, uh, doesn't just lump lesbian, gay, and bisexual into one, you know, one pile of people. I think we need to, we have a lot of work to do on a lot of levels, but I think that it is happening. It will continue to happen. It needs to happen more. One thing I think should happen, really, you did those uh, years ago, if I remember, if I remember rightly, you did, um, you put together a, a, a book or an anthology of people's bisexual stories, didn't you, if I remember rightly? I, my first book is called Getting By, yep. Voices of Bisexuals Around the World. And that's um, writings by people from 32 different countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, 42, 42. Well, what, I think, what I think needs to happen is that that was fabulous what you did there. But, you know, we're getting a lot of over here. We, we get a lot of we get a lot of lip service around mental health. Actually, Oh, you need to talk. You need to do this. And then actually, when people do start talking, they all clam up again. So but I think it'd be quite nice to have, you know, a television network or something publicly that supports things, in a, maybe in a mental health sense, because let's face it, a lot of people are bisexual, are suffering and struggling through mental health. But maybe anonymously just has people on, you know, set either speaking or words or whatever that just expresses the bisexuality. So it might be somebody saying, I, I'm Jeff, I've, you know, I'm 42, I've been in a heterosexual relationship with a woman for 20 years, I'm actually bisexual, I'm telling you the world now. You know what I mean? Just, I think that's what we need, really. We need somebody to support that, don't we? That's the thing. Well, we need, we need our stories out there. And by the way, my other book, so getting... Getting by voices of bisexuals around the world is the first one. The second book I did was a bisexual men's anthology, which I co-edited with H. Sharif Williams, um, also known as Dr. Harukati. And um, that's a, again, the represents the voices of, of bisexual identified men. Um, and then I also edit, edit by Women Quarterly, which is an ongoing publication that we actually offer for free. Yeah, yeah. No, it's any gender and any sexuality, like anyone who wants to read it is welcome to subscribe to it. And it's basically a resource that we put out into the world. And we have subscribers from all over the world. And I'm really excited about that one because it just puts out a lot of different perspectives, different voices, and does, in fact, I think what you're saying needs is needed. Yeah. Um, I think that to respond to what you said, um, I do think we need our voices out there. Um, I think that we need some separate spaces where our voices show up. We also need to have our voices in every other space. Like we need to be heard in every LGBT space. We need to be well represented and centered. Uh, we need to be um, represented and centered in mainstream culture. We need to be, but those stories need to get out there. And I think that by putting our stories out there, we can help people feel possible. We can help people feel, oh, I'm not the only one who's feeling this way. I'm not the only one. There are other people like me. Well, it'd be interesting to talk to you again, Robin, say in uh, oh, two or three years time, maybe. And we'll do, we'll have a look at those figures from that organization that were 8%. I wonder where they'll be in four or five years time, maybe 12, 15. I, I think, I think it definitely, I think they're much higher than we, than we, than we, than, than, than at face value at the moment. Let's put that one. Yeah. And like the youth figures was like went from 6% to 8% to 8.8%. Yeah. I'm guessing that in two years time in 2021, when they release the figures, it'll probably be 
nine point something. I think you're probably right. I think you yeah. right. can't ignore us. They can't ignore us for much longer. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, it's been lovely to talk to you. We've actually talked a lot longer than I thought we were going to do, but it was really interesting to talk to you. I really enjoyed listening to your personal story. That was really, really interesting um, because it, you know, it, it's nice to just to, everyone, everyone's story is different, and it, and the way you actually you you were able to communicate your bisexuality to that lady who came up out to you and said, "I'm bisexual." I mean, that really helped you at that point. But had she not done that, you might have carried on in your mind and having difficulties for a number of years. I mean, that must have been a huge release at that point. So thank you very much indeed for talking to us, Robin. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Leading American bisexual campaigner Robin Oakes there speaking to me at length about the situation stateside. And in a few moments' time, Nikki Lewis and I will be talking a little bit about what Robin had to say. You're listening to the Bisexual Brunch Podcast. From the creators of Bisexual Brunch. Dale, how the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story. What choice do you have? Tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a good-looking kid. I don't have anyone else on my books like you. How about I start to represent you? A moving 40-minute drama based on the life and career of Rock Hudson. Yes! Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life. Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne. Rock! Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Not Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood. Listen by searching for the Distinct Nostalgia podcast... Or visit distinctnostalgia.com. We gotta do something about your voice, kid. We're gonna snap your vocal cords. What? Ah. Louder. Ah. Louder. Rock. Winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look, Dale. I'm dying of this godforsaken disease. And pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. I've had mental health problems, I think, for most of my life. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. My friends didn't quite understand why I was being the way I was being, so support was was pretty much non-existent. A brand new podcast brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters. Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying. We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z. If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water. We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide. I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead. This way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been this taboo subject. Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition of Life Matters. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. You're listening to Bisexual Brunch. 
So Robin Oakes was talking to us about the situation in America. She was talking about how the bisexual community was sort of set up organically throughout the 80s and 90s. And then she was bringing us up to date with the situation in terms of bisexual rights and how she sees things uh, developing under the uh, Biden administration. And she was also saying how she thinks uh, we're entering quite a positive period for bisexuality. You know, lots of people are coming out, particularly younger people. Quite well-known people keep coming out, um, celebrities and people across America. And that's certainly true. You, you see it quite a lot in the uh, LGBT press. She seems to think there'll be a lot of positivity from the Biden administration as well. Um, but she did say also that there's a limit to what government can do. And it's more of a societal thing, really, and a bottom-up, I suppose, in a way, in terms of more changes and more acceptance that uh, needs to come. But I have to admit that I'm still a little bit sceptical, really. I, I I get that there has been progress. There's certainly been progress. Um, but I still think bisexuality and bisexuals are completely, overall, globally, um, particularly in the UK and uh, elements of Europe is a little bit better. But generally, bisexuals are under the radar. Um, and I still think there's a hell of a lot of work to do and I do think personally that it does need sometimes um, intervention from um, governments and uh, official bodies and things in order to move the change forward. I, I worry that um, those of us who are campaigners, and I've said this many times to both of you, those of us who are campaigners or, or work in journalism or write about bisexuality are in a little bit of a bubble really, um, and that you know, that's not the reality. There are a lot of people out there who are completely hidden, don't get the chance to um, speak, and don't even know, possibly, that they're even bisexual. So, yeah, uh, really nice talking to Robin, but I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not quite as positive and hopeful as she is that um, the change is coming that quickly. I mean, you know, there has definitely been progress, um, but to think that we're entering a new wonderful phase for bisexuality, I'm I'm, I'm not so sure. What do you think, Nikki? I think it's difficult to know. I think one of the things is that obviously Robin is surrounded by people who presumably think like her, even though she's campaigning against people that don't. So what I think is really positive about that is that she's not getting cynical about what she's doing. Over the time that she's been campaigning, she's gotten more positive because she's seen change happen and she's probably affected change. So that's really lovely to hear. And actually, I often think that half the battle in this world, if you want to change things, is to be quite oblivious to what's actually going on and tune out the bad noise. Because if you get too immersed in that, you can often just think, oh, it's not worth trying to change people's minds. And the converse of that, of course, is that, you know, Trump very nearly did win another term. We know quite strongly how lots of Republicans and conservatives feel about LGBT people in general. They're not particularly pleasant to them. They're not particularly encouraging. So, you know, there's going to be plenty of people who are still very prejudiced. And America's a very big country. But what I hope is that Robin feels that she is seeing more progression because she's had that span of career where she's worked so hard to change things so that she actually has something to compare it against. Because I think about my time, well, I'm, I still haven't been doing it for that many years overall. So, you know, I still don't know if I can see a pattern from where I start to where I am now, if that makes sense. You're not a veteran yet. You're yeah, veteran. I'm definitely not a veteran, whereas Robin's actually put in the time. So, you know, maybe Robin is in a better place to comment in that respect. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. My my concern is that I think everyone 
tends to these days focus on youth. There's, a, there's an obsession generally in society as a whole uh, with the, the whole thing about youth being so special and, you know, younger people are opening up. And, and it's true, there are more and more younger people who are, who are identifying themselves as bisexual and the more and more people are accepting of that and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we're, we're generally um, aging populations. Let's not forget uh, the vast majority of people who are older and I don't mean ancient, you know, people who are 40 upwards or 30 upwards some, in some cases who just haven't been able to be in that climate, to be able to be open. And we need to bring them along. It's all right saying all the, all the young are happy with all this. But, you know, don't we want people, older people to live their lives openly? Lewis? Yeah, I mean, what you kind of said about a bubble, this is something I've thought about a lot, because obviously kind of when you get to doing what we're doing, you're writing articles and things and people already know how strongly you feel about bisexuality before they've even met you I do think you've created quite a bubble around yourself and it's one of those things which is why I'm always interested when people email me or DM me what's going on it's like because this is what's going on because I'm ready for it now no one's going to be my favorite to me because I'll shut them down in five minutes in like five seconds I've thought about it I'm ready for it and I'm confident in who I am so it's really you know the bisexuals out there that aren't confident in who they are and, and one comment will make them question themselves. Um, you know, not to uh, create stereotypes, but you think of like, you know, the further north you go, you know, the, the further away from that London bubble you go as well. What is it realistically like for a bisexual man in his 40s who really wants to tell his wife? Um, you know, it's a whole different thing. So it depends what the aim of all this is, right? Like, I think the aims of what we're doing. So I feel like with this show, what we do is we talk about bisexual issues for people that don't have bisexuals around them. Um, so that they can realise, oh, this is normal, or, oh, I never thought of it that way, or, oh, this has happened to other people. Because that's what I found when I was spoken to other bisexuals. It's like, that we, we need to share resources in the way gay men do. It's like, oh, that happened to me as a gay man, like, this is what I did. And, and that's it, and that's how you build up people's confidence as a, as a community of people. Um, you then need to look at what's on offer for bisexuals, because clearly there are funding issues, there are issues with how research is conducted, and it's about ironing out all of those so that we get to a world where being a bisexual doesn't put you at any more or less of a disadvantage than anyone else. So I'm bisexual. That's it. I don't like this idea of like, oh, you know, I don't care about sexuality. It's not important. That is great. Um, but I think someone that has the sexuality, they don't want to just ignore it. They want to say, you know, I've understood it. Uh, and this is how it works in my life. This is how bisexual manifests in my life. And that's fine. And that's how it is for me. And I'm happy with it. So get to a point where bisexuals are comfortable with themselves, where society is comfortable with them and that everything is in place that, you know, maybe bisexuals might need a little bit more support with mental health. The figures would certainly suggest that. So that that's taken care of. And that 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 structure is there. Well, we're certainly creating something of a of a community. Somebody uh, uh, came up to me the other day and said that um, she listens all the time. Um, uh, she's missed a few episodes, which she's saving up um, in order to listen to over the Christmas period. So we're her uh, a little treat for Christmas. So uh, we're certainly uh, creating a bit of a community, which is which is very nice, of course. Um, and but the other thing I was going to say was. Um, awareness we're always talking about. We're always talking about bisexual awareness. And I wonder if there are more, you know, subtle things we can do to start getting people 
asking questions about bisexuality and being aware of bisexuality. And I wonder, because I heard the other day that apparently the bisexual flag is now 22 years old. I mean, you wouldn't really know it, would you? But um, the bisexual flag, which is lovely, nice colours, purple colours and things, um, and whether or not we should be using that a bit more, we should be wearing it more, we should have badges and things like that. Um, what's your thoughts? It's an interesting one because I, for a while, so I have my bisexual logo that I have on my t-shirts and stuff that I use for photo shoots and events and things. And I did at one point think about having them made into badges and like handing them out to people. I know I just never got around to it because the one thing I found with the flag, so originally I, I have got like a, a bisexual flag um, badge, but the one thing I found was like, no one knew what it meant. If that was, if, like, I feel like with bisexuality, you literally have to spell it out for people. So that I'm going to be wearing this and only a few people are going to know what it means. Even less are going to ask, what is that? What does it mean? Um, so actually having the word bisexual, I found, is a, is a better way to, to make the point as you're in the morning commute. What do you think, Nikki? More blatancy? I'm wondering if, if instead of having just a uh, sole flag, what we'd had instead was the colour purple in a rainbow flag, if that would have got more conversation. Because people know what rainbow flags stand for and I feel like then they would have interrogated what the difference was. That's one of the th that's one of the thoughts I've had in the past about what we should be wearing. I I just wear loads of purple and hope that the right people understand. <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how far that's stretching. Okay, well, that's Bisexual Brunch for this week. If you've got any comments, thoughts, musings, do get in touch with us at, at Bisexual Brunch on Twitter. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you later. Bye for now. Right, guys, somehow I made it through this episode without falling to sleep. I am exhausted. The baby hasn't slept in days, so I'm going to go and have a power nap. Are you trying to say we're boring? Is that what you're trying to say, really? No, literally. <laughs> if this were anything else, I would have fallen asleep. But um, this has but, kept me awake somehow, and that's that's a, that's an achievement. And is that a Superman T-shirt you've got on there? It is a Superman T-shirt. My bisexual one's in the wash, so Superman will have to do as a backup. <laughs> and, and Nikki, um, you've got to go back to looking after your puppy. Yeah, my, my surrogate puppy, until I get one of my own. Um, I just got to try and not nick it. That's the main thing. <laughs> this program is an MIM production. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.